And so uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about what it means to meet Jesus. And then the week after that, we talked about becoming more like him. Uh, This morning, I want to actually back up in the why we exist, because I think that when you've got these other two things figured out, suddenly the first part makes a whole lot more sense, which is this, we exist to be a community. Community is an interesting word within our particular culture right now. I I think there are a lot of people, I think we are often very lonely. We live isolated lives, and so we have this desire, this drive to connect with other people, to find commonality with other people. What brings us together? What unites us? And so if you go, if you're on social media, you probably are finding groups that you are a part of where you share a common interest. Or maybe there's different groups that you meet up with, and I think a lot of the times this is digging into our need, uh, this desire in us to connect with other people and to forge some sort of identity for ourselves. I would actually argue that a large part of the incredible polarization that we are seeing within our culture and especially within the United States right now is driven by people who are searching, who are longing for identity and for connection. And so one of the places people go to do that is politics, and they align themselves with certain views, and to a certain point where it doesn't even matter, they might not necessarily, if they were to think through and look through logically their particular views on different things, that they push those aside because they want to be a part of a group and accept and embrace all of that group's sayings, teachings, concepts, ideas, philosophy. And I think this happens on the left, on the right, it happens to all of us. It happens in religious communities, it happens in secular groups. We are all longing to try and figure out and find out what our identity is and to find people with whom we sense we belong. This morning, I want to take some time really just to dig in to a passage in, uh, in Philippians. Uh, and uh, if you, So if you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up. And let's head to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And so we're going to be looking at that. We're going to be spending some time digging into that passage this morning. Uh, so before we do that, I want to take some time to pray, and then we're going to get going on things. Does that sound good to everyone? Awesome. Okay. I see some heads nodding. Great. Okay. And I didn't see any heads like shaking. So I'm figuring that means that's permission to let's go ahead. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the work that you are doing in this world, that we have not been forgotten or abandoned. That Heavenly Father, you have not given up on us, but through Jesus Christ, you have come. You have reconciled us to yourself, that in you there is forgiveness of sins, that in you there is new life, that you have given us your spirit to lead us and guide us. That is just so good. And so, Lord, as we come to you this morning with with longings in our hearts, with burdens on our heart, we pray, Lord, that you would take those things and that you would place within us hope and that you would stir up within us joy. And that this morning, we would have hearts that are receptive to what you wish to say to us, both as individuals, but even more so as a community. I pray that this passage this morning would speak to us in powerful ways, that it would speak to us and remind us who we are, that we would find our identity not from different groups in our culture, but rather that we would go and we would discover our true identity in Jesus Christ. And so we pray this, we ask this in the name of your son. Amen. 
All right, Philippians chapter 2. A few things you need to know about this. First off, this is a letter to a church in a city in the Roman Empire called Philippi. And Paul is writing to a group of young, essentially baby Christians, people who are just starting out. Most of them have no real background in, in the story of Israel and in the story of God's work throughout history. In fact, many of them probably would have been raised in pagan environments. So most of them would have grown up going to different temples, worshiping idols, worshiping all sorts of different gods, offering sacrifices to these different gods. And they go and they hear Paul or, or some other Christian proclaim this message of Jesus. And that in him, that there is this reign that is happening, that the one true God has broken into our world in a very real and tangible way, and that he has conquered sin and evil and death, and that he now reigns. And so this community is a whole bunch of people who are trying to figure out how do we live this. And so Paul is writing to them this letter. And now one of the realities is when you live in an empire, there are all sorts of, all sorts of beliefs and convictions and statements that that empire is driven by. Specifically, one of the major statements they would have is Caesar, the emperor, is Lord. But Paul and the other Christians, they're proclaiming and embodying this message that, no, wait a minute, Caesar is actually not Lord. He, he, the universe doesn't exist for him. That actually... There was a man named Jesus who the Roman Empire put to death on a cross. And in fact, he is actually the one true Lord of all creation. That everything exists, exists through him and for him. And you can imagine this is a controversial statement to make. And it brings with it all sorts of tensions within their culture. In fact, Paul, as he's writing this letter, he is writing it from prison. He has been going around proclaiming this message about who Jesus is, that Jesus is the one true Lord, one true God, and it's gotten him in trouble. And he's writing to a community that is beginning to experience tension and trouble in their own lives. As they go and they live out this message, as they embody this message, it's bringing tension and conflict into their lives. They're seeing their businesses begin to struggle. They're seeing uh, relationships with family members and friends who, who they're going, wait a minute, you can't believe that kind of stuff. That's dangerous. And it's causing all sorts of fear within them. And so Paul writes them this letter. And it's an incredible letter. One that inspires, full of hope and encouragement and, and if you're going to go kind of break down where, if, kind of before we dive into chapter two, I think the best way to summarize chapter one would simply be this. Paul, he says, he, look at my situation. Look at the challenges I am going through. Look at all the difficulty I'm facing, the rejection I'm dealing with in my life, the threats that are being placed on my life. And what he simply says is this, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For Paul, his driving force within his life, the thing that he measures everything else against, whether good stuff is happening, whether bad stuff is happening, whether he is in a time where things are just going so smoothly, or whether he's going through a time of incredible opposition and difficulty. And he says this, he just simply says this, Christ will be exalted in my body. And for that reason, he is full of hope and full of 
joy. So he's in a prison cell, and he's going, hey, I'm here because of Jesus and his people. They, they threw me in here. I got to tell them about Jesus. I got to proclaim that. I got to embody that, showing them what Jesus' love is really all about. So he says, that's great. That's amazing. And if they let him out, he's like, oh, then that'll just be more evidence that God is there journeying with me, and I can continue to go out and proclaim that message to other people. So he goes, that's great. Essentially, Paul is saying, whatever the circumstances I am in, it is an opportunity for Christ to be exalted in my life, for my life to magnify, to show people who this Jesus is, what this Jesus is all about, what his reign looks like in this world. And so for him, that is everything to him. And so as we journey into chapter 2, this is the argument that Paul has been putting forward, that Christ be exalted in his body. And if that's happening then he couldn't care about anything else. So, if Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes this, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, essentially saying this, if God is working in your life, and this is rhetorical, if he's not asking the question like, if God is, he's, he's saying, God is at work in your life. These things are happening And so then he goes on and says this, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Now now this word like-minded or same-minded is one that shows up multiple times throughout Paul's writings. In fact, he's constantly drawing on it. It seems to be a prayer or a request that he makes of the various different churches that he has planted or is ministering to. A few just quick examples. These are the words that he uses in the Greek. Live in harmony, like-mindedness, with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Another one here uh, in Philippians 4.2. He's addressing some of the division that's happening within the church. And he writes this between these two women leaders. And he simply says this. "Uh, I plead with with you, uh, I should look this up because I'm going to say it wrong, Euodia and Sunute, I plead with Sunute to be in the same mind in the Lord. This calling for saying, hey, I want you guys to be looking at this in the same way. And then he says this, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. Now for Paul, when he's beginning to break down, what does this mean? He gives us a very clear indication. If you go back to verse 2, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Now, interesting thing that Paul does not do here, he does not begin to give a list of doctrine. He's not like, here's the statement of faith that you need to have, you need to sign off on this. For him, if you go and look through, what does it mean for him, as he looks at this community, what does it mean for the Philippians to be like-minded, to be of the same mind? He says this, having the same love, being one in spirit, and of one mind. The NASB translates that intent on one purpose. Like-minded is not about believing all the exact same things, or at least that's not Paul's drive here. Paul was passionate about theology. He was passionate about right teaching, but that is not Paul's emphasis here. Paul is saying, I want you to have the same love, that you would be one in spirit, and that you would have one purpose that you share together. Ultimately, what Paul is longing for the church to be and to experience is unity. 
He wants to see a community that is divided and going all sorts of different directions. Fear is creeping in, concerns about persecution, life becoming difficult. And what he is saying to them, what his prayer is, what his desire is, is to see them experience unity. Continuing on, Paul writes this in chapter, or chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of others. So, so essentially, Paul here is saying, we want unity. Here is what gets in the way of that. He says it's selfish ambition, vain conceit. And then he says the solution to that, the thing that you need to know, to see, to to be, is he says rather in humility value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests about what's best or easiest for you, but each of you to the interests of others. I love, um, there's so many things that are interesting about this particular passage. One is if you were to go and to travel back to the Roman Empire, they had all sorts of virtues, the, the different beliefs about what a good Roman should strive for. Things like courage, telling the truth. One of those things that you do not see on that list is humility. Essentially, the Roman idea back then would be if you got it, flaunt it. If, if uh, you were born into the right family, that makes you better than everyone else. And in fact, if you lower yourself to, what other, to the, those other levels, that you are actually being disrespectful to the entire spirit of Rome because there is an ordered hierarchy. And when you begin to challenge that, you are essentially spitting in the face of the empire and the emperor. There's actually stories, accounts of Christians being thrown into the lions in persecution in Rome. And one of the interesting things in one particular, well, actually there's multiple accounts, but the thing that got the crowds really riled up was that these Christians, they were not just made up of all people who were poor, all people who were rich, or different races and nationalities, and yet all these Christians together, regardless of their state, their hierarchy in the Roman Empire, they went into the ring together and they held hands together. That, that when a rich person was knocked down, that the poor person would go and help them up. Or when the poor person was knocked down, the rich person would go and help them up. That they threw this hierarchy completely out the window, and there's accounts of people booing and hissing at the Christians, offended that they would do something so disrespectful. Humility. It's an interesting thing that we often don't think about a lot. Often when I think about humility, uh, I think about people who maybe look down on themselves. Uh, sometimes I think about humility being those people who are just like, oh, I'm not that good, not that great. But, but I think that Paul has a much richer and deeper understanding about what humility is all about. In 2015, uh, actually, first I should say this. I am an NBA basketball fan. That's something I love to watch. I'm a huge, like, diehard Raptors fan. I was so excited uh, last summer when, or last spring when they won the NBA championship. Uh, but one team that I found incredibly interesting and exciting over the past five years has been a team called the Golden State Warriors. Now, chances are you probably are familiar with them. One reason is that they were playing against the Raptors, and the Raptors beat them back in June. But back in 2015... 
they won the NBA championship. It was sort of Steph Curry, who's their star player, his kind of like rise to, oh my goodness, he is a superstar. And he was incredibly fascinating to watch, and their entire team was interesting to watch. And one of the things that was so, um, and he and actually that season, he was awarded the Most Valuable Player uh, Award within the NBA League. And uh, so one of the things that was really interesting about that was just watching them play, the way that they move the ball around. There was almost this sort of selflessness present in the way that they play. The following year, they won, the cha- or sorry, they won the championship. The next year, they actually came back with even more force. It was like they had a chip on their shoulders. They wanted to prove to the world that they were still the best team. And once again, Steph Curry, who had just won the league's Most Valuable Player Award, he had one of the most incredible seasons ever. It was the first time ever he won the Most Valuable Player Award again. He arguably could have won the Most Improved Player Award, which is pretty impressive when you just won like Most Valuable Player the year before. But, but he had this incredible achievement in that particular season, and ultimately they lost in the championship, which is his heartbreak moment in game seven. Coming out that summer, they brought in a new player, a guy named Kevin Durant, who they'd actually beat in uh, the conference finals. And, and Kevin Durant was one of the best players in the league, and when he signed with the Warriors, everyone went, oh, seriously? Like, why even watch basketball anymore? But there was this interesting other group of people who were going, well, how is this going to work? Because you have this superstar, Steph Curry, and you have this other superstar, Kevin Durant, and it's kind of like, who's going to be the alpha dog? How are they going to share the ball? How is that going to work? Because in basketball, it is often a very ego-driven sport with players who care a lot about their stats, getting their points, getting to touch the ball a certain amount of times, and worried about their brand and the endorsements that come with it. And so there's this big question, is Steph Curry going to take a step back? Uh, And a sports journalist, her name Rachel Nichols, she sat down with Steph Curry during the finals that year and and was talking about this experience with Kevin Durant. I want to show you a clip from this interview because I think it's really interesting. And I think it's a beautiful example of what humility can look like, not in a self-loathing kind of way, but rather, well, let me just show the clip. You are, you've had a fantastic finals and yet there's already a groundswell, hey, Kevin Durant is going to be the finals MVP. You were the guy who actively recruited Kevin Durant. You had to know that there was at least a risk you would be ceding some of the recognition to him. How does it feel now that it's actually happened? I mean, uh, I'm, I'm happy, man. It's been here eight years. I've seen the depths of Warrior basketball. I've seen you know, the rise and enjoy the whole process. I've seen us you know, become a championship caliber and a championship winning team. And now we're in a position to do it again. So um, to help orchestrate that and to be in a position where a guy like Katie can see himself gelling with our, our team, with myself on the floor, you know, together, it, it's, it's a special feeling. He took the final shot in game three, the dagger. That would have been you a couple years ago. How are you able to have both? Did you see my celebration when it happened? Like that, that was a... a, a Genuine feeling of, of uh, I know I'm not bigger than anybody else in our team, and I, this is a, this is something that we all have to do together. It's not just talk. It's literally how I approach every single night. I love that celebrating for his teammate, knowing that he's giving up his shots, his touches, his stats are going to be impacted in a negative way. But for him, ultimately, it is about the team seeing success. 
Now, another clip, I just had to show this because I think this is amazing. This is an interview with a guy named Iggy or uh, Andre Iguodala, who is also a teammate of Steph Curry's. And this is an interview he was doing in the locker room during the finals last year. I think it was after game three. And I just think this quote is just an incredible expression, not simply of just what it means to, uh, to be a great team meet, but an incredible example of what it looks like when a community of people are united around humility. Uh, everything you guys have overcome, all the championships you've won, what motivates you to keep going to play hurt at this point in your career? Uh, I just, I like Steph. He's a good dude. And, uh, good guy to be around. Uh, that's really the only reason why I like fucking basketball. You want, you want him to win? Like, that's that's what it is? Yeah, they, they, they I've never seen that in person. So, such a good person to ever get some backlash or, the, you know, whatever from other his peers because they're so jealous of what he has so it's kind of sticking back sticking to him so I'm trying to you know, whatever it takes to protect his legacy I love that quote just bring it I like why do you keep playing you're hurt you're injured you don't have anything to prove. He's won a finals MVP. He's an incredible player. In fact, actually playing on the Warriors meant that he was taking a bench role, so he would play less. His stats were impacted, but this is his response. I can pack it up. I've got my championships. I've got my MV uh, uh, finals MVP, uh, but what does he say? I like Steph. I'm trying to do whatever it takes to protect his legacy. How awesome is that? I mean, uh, humility is about when we don't elevate ourselves to being the most important, but when we live with an intentionality and we share our lives with other people in a way that says, hey, it's not all about me. Back to Paul. Paul continues saying this. He says this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So, so for Paul, he's saying this isn't simply about how to be successful as a community. You don't just simply be humble because it will help us get along better. For Paul, this is deeply rooted in the very understanding about who Jesus is and what it means to be human. He ties it right back to Jesus because this kind of self-giving, selflessness that, that he is calling the community to is not just some sort of nice pie-in-the-sky idea. He says this is something that has been modeled and lived out through Jesus. Another way you could actually, one way you could translate this is cultivate these kinds of relationships with one another. Think about these things. Put these things into practice. And then Paul draws from what we think is kind of a hymn or a poem that was often used in the worship of uh, the, the different uh, early Christian communities. And here, here it is in saying this about Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. For Paul, his understanding of who God is and what God has done through Jesus, this, this captures it. 
I mean, for Paul, he goes, this is who God is. Often, so, so often we have all these different theological concepts about who or what God is like. And those things are important and valuable. But Paul ultimately is saying, this is who God is. It's the story of Jesus, of self-emptying love, even to the point of death. And then he goes on to say that, or essentially it implies this, this is who we were created to be. Just as we want to have unity with each other, if we were to have unity with God, this is what that life looks like because this is what God loves. This is how God loves. And as we as people, as disciples, as apprentices to Jesus, want to be people who love what God loves and loves like God loves, Jesus is our perfect example of that. Now, I want to break this down because it's easy to get caught up in sort of the poetry and the flow of this hymn uh, because I think that there's a really uh, kind of a simple way to kind of look at that and go, okay, well, what does that mean? What does that look like for us? And so I simply want to kind of summarize verses 6 to 8 and kind of frame it around these three, uh, I guess it's technically four different words that I've bolded there. Uh, And so kind of to summarize the verse, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself, obedient to death. Just to kind of change the format of it, I kind of frame it this way. Although being in very nature God, he did not use to his own advantage, but instead he made himself nothing to the point of death. I think this is the mindset that Jesus invites us into and that through his life, death, and resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit, we are actually called to live out and be in this world. Uh, and, and I'm very serious when I say the word death. Now, sometimes for us, that involves a literal kind of death. For Jesus, it involved a literal death, a love that drove him to the cross to self-sacrifice. But, but in any case where you are ultimately moving in the direction of humility, it always involves some sort of death. Uh, I think just even looking at Steph Curry, Uh, And there's this idea, okay, well, I have these stats, I'm getting MVP season, I'm getting lots of accolades and attention, and to have to take a bit of a backseat and see those stats drop down, there is a death to that. So we're following Jesus and pouring out our lives for others. There is a death that happens within us. Uh, Maybe here's the way we could kind of frame it. This is how Jesus frames it, or Paul frames it around Jesus. Although being in the very nature God did not use to his own advantage, but instead he made himself nothing to the point of death. Here's what it might look like for us if we were to use this same template in our lives. Although this would be what's easiest for me. I will not focus on what I want, but instead I will choose to serve others. Although it has been a long, vicious week at work, I will not focus on just going home, putting up my feet, seeing what's in my Netflix queue. But instead, I know this person is going through a really difficult, painful time, and I'm going to get up, and I'm going to make them a meal, or I'm going to give them a phone call, or I'm going to go over and be present to them and with them. Or maybe it's in your work and you've achieved some sort of success. Maybe you're doing a group project or doing something. And and it's although you did a great job and you're getting recognition for it and you are deserving of that recognition, I will not 
simply look at what I can get out of it, how this benefits me, but instead I will exalt the other people I work with. I'll share what they're doing, their part, their role, their important part that they played in this success. Although this would be what's easiest for me, I will not focus on what I want, but instead choose to serve others. The thing that I think is so incredible is that in the incredible diversity that was present within the New Testament church and is still present within the church today, and I think of all the different things that we can get divided over and to argue about, uh, I think there's this amazing thing. Christ-like humility makes it possible for the church to experience unity even in the midst of our diversity. When we practice, when we look to Jesus, when we, we allow the Spirit of God to come in and transform our minds, that we would pursue our lives in a way that reflects the same humility that Jesus Christ showed on the cross. That that, that is a unity that can overcome immense diversity. This morning, I simply want to kind of end off some things with talking about what does that mean for us specifically as a community? And Forest View is a diverse community. People from all sorts of different backgrounds, uh, people from uh, different parts of the world, people from uh, different church traditions, people with different desires about, oh, I like the worship to be like this, or I come because of this, or whatever it is. Uh, There's all sorts of differences present within this room. And with those differences can come division and conflict and tension. And so here's something I just want to walk through because I think that this is in line with Paul's heart for the church is what he would essentially be praying for us today. And so I'll say this. We strive to, as a community, to be a place where we see the best in others. I'm a firm believer that often what you look for, you will find. I was recently reading a book about a psychologist, and he was talking about he had to go to a parent-teacher assembly, and so he went to this, and I guess there's sort of a town hall sort of forum. Usually his wife goes, and before he left, his wife was telling him, kind of just giving him a feel for how things looked, and she was saying that, okay, just there's this guy named Hank, and Hank is a moron, and he's just always talking, and he just loves the sound of his own voice, and it's really annoying, and just like tune him out. And so this guy, he goes and he sits down, he's there, and, and a guy gets up and he's like, oh, I think that's Hank. And Hank starts saying really dumb things and just kind of grandstanding, keeps talking and, and yapping and yapping. And this guy's just kind of rolling his eyes and annoyed. And so he goes back home and he's talking to his wife afterwards. And they begin to talk. And, and one of the things that she says, he says, yeah, what's the deal with his ponytail? And she's like, ponytail? No, no, Hank doesn't have a ponytail. That's Fred. I don't know what the name was. Uh, but, but, but that's Fred. And Fred's actually, he's a part of the, he's on the council, and he has some really great stuff to say. And suddenly, the psychologist, he begins to reflect on the things that the man was actually saying. And he's like, actually, he was making really good points and saying really good things. What you look for so often, you will see. And so for us, we want to strive to see the best in others. Over the last number of years, I've spent time working in youth ministry. And one of the things that I would get to do with our our youth ministry leaders, who are so important and key to making that ministry happen, is one of the things, they had life groups, we called them, and so it's kind of small groups that would gather together, similar here. And uh, and one of the things that I encouraged them, I'd kind of give them assignments to the leaders. And one of the things I would challenge them, encourage them to do is say, I want you tonight to go and find 
a compliment that you can give to two of the people in your group. And it has to be true. You have to find something great, awesome, amazing about that teenager in your group. And before the end of the night, I want you to go up and I want you to share that with them. Like, take them aside. Don't do it out in front of everyone. Take them aside and just speak those words of affirmation into their life. And I said, if at all possible, try and pick the kids who annoy you and drive you crazy. (laughs) It was amazing to hear the feedback about these kids who drove them crazy and even the change that happened after that. How when they actually go and they look for the good things going on in kids' lives, students' lives, oh man, he doesn't shut up. (laughs) He's always talking. He's disrespectful. But then he's like, man, you are a natural leader. Or, or you just seem to have this awareness. You make everyone feel welcome and included in the group. You don't shut up, but you make everyone feel welcome and included. It was an amazing experience for our team. And it was something that just reminded me again and again how often I can focus on the negative in people, but what I need to be doing is striving to see the best in others. Uh, the second one is believe the best about others. Uh, when I was starting out in seminary, I had to do this thing called field placement, which is kind of like a, doing an interning at a church. And so I was involved at a church in, uh, in Mississauga and Oakville called Chartwell Baptist Church. And uh, one of the amazing things about that, I was involved mostly with the worship ministry there, um, and, but I got to do some preaching, and I really loved that, and, and it was a really great experience. And there was a guy at Chartwell. He was like the lead pastor. I mean, it was a Baptist church, so like technically he was probably like the Pope in Chartwell style. Uh, he, he was just, he was the one who had started it, and his name was the Reverend Dr. Roy Matheson. Uh, and Reverend Rock, Dr. Roy Matheson was a brilliant, brilliant man. And he's got PhDs. He'd help start up seminaries. Uh, he, he was the guy who like, you go to staff meeting, and he'd do a devotional and be reading from the Bible, and you go, Roy, I really liked how that, you put that. How, what translation were you using? And he's like, um, my own. You know, he had the entire New Testament in Greek. He memorized. He, was just, he would teach courses on Greek. A brilliant, brilliant man. In fact, actually, there were staff retreats where they'd just play a game where you get all the, like a dozen pastors, and it was called Stump Roy. And, uh, and they always lost. Uh, and so I remember I got to go and have like one-on-one time with Roy to prep uh, one of my sermons. And so I remember sitting down with him in his office. And, uh, and I had just starting seminary, and I went on this rant about Churches that don't allow women to be leaders within the church. That's something I was like worked out, passionate about. I'm like, women, the church needs to have women leaders in the church. And Roy, I knew, was passionate about this too. In fact, throughout his entire ministry, he had been an advocate for women leadership within the church. And it's brought all sorts of tension and conflict within his denomination. People who wanted to see his ordination revoked. People who were angry at him about this. And so I'm going off on this rant, kind of thinking like, Roy's going to jump in. and It's just going to like pile on on these people. And I remember kind of being like, they're so wrong. They're so dumb. How do they not know? How do they not see this? Why are they so caught up in their sexism? Like, I'm just going off on this rant. And I remember Roy just sitting there, and then ultimately he just goes, yeah, um, I always try my best to make sure what I believe is right. But I've been wrong about stuff too. It was just this amazing humble response. It was this, just believing the best in these predominantly men, I think they're all men, who he was in conflict with. But, but he didn't simply dismiss them and write them off. He, he believed the best in them. Now, that didn't mean he agreed with them. 
didn't mean he avoided those awkward, difficult conversations, but it meant that for him, he wasn't going to give up on them, that he was going to believe the best in them. How much of a difference would that make in our lives if we made an effort to believe the best in people who maybe have very different perspectives than us? When we realize, hey, this is, maybe this is what they were raised with. Maybe this is the only kind of life they know. Maybe there are certain fears and, and concerns they are dealing with that we aren't aware of. And before we write them off and dismiss them and ignore them, maybe our starting place is to believe the best about them. Finally, we strive to want the best for others. This doesn't mean we, we simply just, hey, whatever you want, <laughs> You go and get that. But for us, it means, no, no, we, we're going to have hard and difficult conversations with each other, but not because we have this inept desire that like, we need to be the person who is right and who wins the argument, but rather because we realize this is important stuff that we need to talk about and wrestle through together. And because ultimately what we want is what's best for them. What a difference it would make in the history of the church if the various different conflicts, arguments, and division were ultimately driven by a desire for what's best for everyone involved. It would make a world of difference. Although this would be what's easiest for me, I will not focus on what I want, but instead choose to serve others. I love Paul concludes this hymn or this poem, and it just, he kind of goes on the other side of death, right? It's all about build up. Like Jesus, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, this shameful, painful, difficult way to die, full of embarrassment and rejection. But then he says on the other side of that, here's what happens. Therefore God exalted him, being Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Paul sees that as we go through this process of dying, this walk of humility, of seeing others as better than ourselves and seeking the good of them, as we strive to see and to believe and to want the best for others, there, there is a death experience. But Paul, he looks at this community, he looks at the Jesus story, and he looks at this community and says, there is resurrection and life on the other side. There's a whole new world opened up of possibilities, of relationships, of connections, and of witness, and of a community embodying the story of Jesus as we love one another selflessly. He essentially says this is God's new creation. This is God's reign being realized in the world as we follow Christ's mindset and love each other with humility. And for Paul, this is why he says this is complete joy to me. Like, like when we think about all the things that bring us joy in our lives, maybe it's success in a business, maybe it's family stuff, maybe it's relationship stuff. For Paul, the biggest joy for him is seeing a church united. To seeing a church that humbly loves each other in sacrificial love. 
Uh, one of the incredible things that I've gotten to see here at Forest View is to hear, or as in my short time here, is just hear stories about the work that God has been doing in the community that's present here. And the amazing thing is there is an incredible diversity in this room, but the thing that is so beautiful and incredible and fills me with joy is to hear stories about the ways in which you have been present to each other, even in the most difficult times, serving each other with humility and love. The times that you have been there present as people are going through seasons of loss or incredibly scary times, maybe a business is falling apart or, or a relationship is falling apart and to be present there and to say, you are not alone. We're here with you. We are going to help you through this. We're going to carry you through this, not because it's easiest for us, but because we believe that there is resurrection on the other side of this as we share our lives together. I want to invite our ushers to come forward and uh, we're going to get ready to take communion. There's a, a passage. They're going to prepare it and uh, distribute it. And then uh, what we ask you to do is, as we kind of sent it all out, that you would hold on to it. And then uh, I'll come back up uh, together. I'll stand up and we can all eat together as a reminder of what Jesus has done and also a reminder that we are all in this together. In the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he writes this in chapter 3, starting verse 7. Uh, and it's first, just to start off, he's talking to a community that's split, that's got divisions. There's Gentiles and there's Jews and there's this, sort of these two different groups going like, we don't know because our culture has only told us we're not supposed to hang out together, we're not supposed to be together. And, and Paul is saying, you know, wait a minute, like because of what Jesus has done, you guys, the Gentiles are now grafted in. Like they're a part of this mission and calling in the world. And Paul goes on, he says this, verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Now, the thing that's so fascinating about that particular last line, I mean, I get, hey, my sufferings are my glory. Like, I put in the work. I put in the effort. I was the one, like, putting in all of the energy. I'm the one who reaps the glory, the praise, the attention. But for Paul, this humility just permeates, Christ's humility just permeates his entire life. And so even as he looks at the challenges and sufferings he's going through in his life, he doesn't see it as his own glory, but he sees it as something shared with the church. He doesn't need to hold on to that. He doesn't need that for his stats because for him, it's all a gift. It's all God's grace. There's nothing that he can accomplish to do anything because all the glory and praise goes to Jesus in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. And so for us this morning, as we share this meal together, we are reminded that whatever we bring, whatever our accomplishments, it ultimately means nothing because 
at its very heart, the gospel is this message of God's incredible grace coming to a whole bunch of people that do not deserve it and never could. So let's pray and then we'll distribute the food. Actually, let's distribute the food. Let's take some time to be quiet and then let's eat together.